Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I'm Dr. Romy Redding. And I'm Dr. Billy Pivnik. And welcome to Couched. Today, we are delighted to welcome two great thinkers to our show, Drs. Judith Butler and Patricia Clough. Judith Butler is the Maxine Elliott Professor in the Department of Comparative Literature and the Program of Critical Theory at the University of California, Berkeley. She's the author of several important books, including Gender Trouble, Feminism and the Subversion of Identity, Bodies That Matter, On the Discursive Limits of Sex, The Psychic Life of Power, Theories of Subjection, Antigone's Claim, Kinship Between Life and Death, Precarious Life, Powers of Violence and Mourning, and Frames of War, When is Life Grievable? She was also co-editor of the book, Vulnerability and Resistance, and most recently she authored The Force of Nonviolence. Dr. Patricia Ticinero Clough is the Professor of Sociology and Women's Studies and a practicing psychoanalyst in New York City. She's on the Faculty and Training Committee at the Institute of Contemporary Psychotherapy and on the Faculty of the National Institute for the Psychotherapies. She is author of a number of articles and books, including Auto-Affection, Unconscious Thought in the Age of Technology, The User Unconscious on Affect, Media, and Measure, and the editor of Beyond Biopolitics, Essays on the Governance of Life and Death. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining our show. We're very excited to have you. Um, And given that both of your work spans such a wide range of topics, we could very easily go in many directions. But today we want to begin by focusing on the issue of systemic racism, which is long overdue, become a prioritized concern in the public consciousness. It's also very much a point of intersection in your writings. Uh, one thing I want to say, though, before we begin, it's essential that we on this podcast mark our whiteness, as all of us speaking today are white or mixed ethnicity and white presenting. And we recognize that this topic needs to be taken up by white people so that the labor of teaching about racism does not fall solely on brown and black people. So let's begin. Can you start us out by orienting our listeners to what you are specifically referencing when you use the term? systemic racism. We hear it used often. Well, thank you. Thank you, Romy. And thank you, Billy. It's great to be in a conversation with you both and with Judith. And as a white critical social theorist and psychoanalyst, I'm very grateful to be uh, contributing to a very important conversation happening in our society and around the world and in very many institutes that are training psychoanalysts and psychotherapists. So with that, thank you all. Systemic racism is a term that is attributed frequently to Joe Fagan, who is a sociologist and who uh, in 2000 
published a book called Racist America, in which he presented statistical and historical data to argue that the United States was founded as a racist society and continues to be a racist society in terms of policy and programming and institution behavior and ideas. Not only anti-Black racism, but also settler colonialism of um, indigenous people. Of course, before Fagan, there were a number of writers that we know now, W.E. Du Bois and Frederick Douglass and James Baldwin, Franz Fanon, uh, more recently, Gloria Anzaldúa, Toni Morrison, Fred Moten, Sadia Hartman, Hortense Spillers, who gave really gripping and detailed descriptions of the founding of our society as racist and the continuing effects of that founding moment on our lives today. I mentioned these writers because they give us the experience of systemic racism, because systemic racism does point to uh, relations of power, to institutional arrangements, and it's easy um, for white people, of course, to forget that racism is just ongoing because they're embedded in those relationships. But for people of color and people who are marked with blackness, the experience is intensely conscious or triple consciousness, as Fanon would say. My last point being, racism most often grounds itself in the body or biology. And so it becomes extremely important to understand how the body is being used or biology is being used or the slip into human and less than human is being used and how that is so important to critiques of racism, and I think leads to a conversation I hope that we'll be having today about biopolitics and the way it affects the individual subject and what I think we will discuss as populations. Thank you, Patricia. Judith, I bet you have something to say about that. Yes, well, that was, that was wonderful, Patricia. Thank you for opening up all those avenues. When I think about systemic racism, the first question, how is systemic racism different from other forms of racism? And then the second question is, what do we mean when we say systemic? If we look at the number of black and brown people who are dying of COVID-19, for instance, and we see that in the United States alone, the statistics for the death of African Americans are exactly more than double that of any other racial group. And Latinos, for instance, constitute 34% of cases nationwide, even as they constitute only 18% of the population. Now, those kind of statistical differences are are really important to think about uh, because we have to ask how populations have been treated in certain ways. And there are a lot of different factors in our social world that come to account for those statistical differences and the disproportionate vulnerability that Black and Brown communities experience under contemporary conditions in the U.S. Thinking about those statistics, like who has had access to health care? What was the quality of that health care? Who has not had access? 
Was it not affordable? Was there explicit discrimination from healthcare facilities, representatives, insurance companies that kept people from getting the healthcare they need? Did they fear racism in healthcare facilities and stay away? I think that the statistics in some ways make us look at poverty and make us look at, at racism, health care institutions, economic, who has money, who does not, right? All of these are very complex and they do form a kind of system, They a, a systematic assemblage or constellation of factors which become compounded in the lives of black and brown people, especially those who are poor or disabled or have pre-existing health conditions, and the elderly. So systemic means it's coming at you from all sides. What you're experiencing mm-hmm. is the compounded effect of several issues like that coming to get you, I mean, I don't mean to sound persecutorial, but landing on you, pressuring this body, making this body more vulnerable, intensifying that vulnerability. And that's really, I think, important. The other thing I wanted to say is that there are trans-regional forms of of fighting racism that don't just stay within the framework of the nation state. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to remember that as we as we think about it. I'm thinking about how expansive the definitions and the explanations you gave are and how helpful that can be when one is thinking about it. And yet we have probably all experienced way too often the encounter in which someone so quickly wants to reduce it down to that themselves as an individual, as a not me situation. I'm not a racist. And it's incredibly difficult to find a way in so that a person can maybe loosen some of those defenses and be able to take in, you know, this other view. So I'm wondering what um, both of you might think about how to work with that kind of an encounter. Uh-huh. Let's turn to the psychoanalyst for that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's a tough question because, and, and certainly may not be like, oh, we've solved it today in this one episode of Couched, but you know, I'd be interested to hear your, your you thoughts know, about it. Uh, just to make you wait a bit for that sure. answer, <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the points that Judith was making. Mm -hmm. And then I promise, because one of the things that I have been thinking about for a long time is called population racism, which Judith was mentioning, because I'm very interested in the statistical analyses implied in making these populations, because they're not really descriptions of people, but tracks into the future like this. Birth rate is this, hospitals in five years. Education is at this rate, we should build schools in five years. All these numbers track into the future and into what kind of policy and programming we're going to do in the country and around the world. And so already you can have people, if they're not already intended to be racist, they become racist in their effect. Numbers become part of a technology for distributing resources. And exactly, COVID has shown that it's long-term lack of health care in some communities that make them more open to this virus. 
So psychoanalysis, for instance, focuses on the individual subject. And the gap between the individual subject and the population and the futurity of that population, it's not clear to me how to bring that into psychoanalysis. I'm not sure how psychoanalysis is grappling yet with that, how to function in in the social world or how to bring that particular social world into the setting of the clinic. It may not be the only place that we have to be in order to address some of those issues. About your simpler question, if, if I may, Yes, I think systemic racism allows people sometimes to say, well, maybe the system, but not me. But it's exactly what systemic racism means. Yes, you. Mm-hmm. Yes, everyone that participates. I have a patient of color who said to me when we were discussing systemic racism, it was a very moving and important conversation because he also has a very serious secondary condition. So he's terrified of COVID, as he should be. So we were talking about those vulnerabilities. But he said, you know, it's hard for me to talk about systemic racism because I'm part of it. Every day something happens that I have to decide, Mm. should I deal with this or should I let it go? And every time I let it go, I become part of systemic racism. And I was very moved by that, you know, and we went on to talk. And I thought if someone of color who's gone through so much can see himself in systemic racism, why can't more white people see themselves in systemic racism? Well, they're unconscious, but they're also, I think, living out privilege and power without noting that they are. I mean, they they surely have other complaints in life. They may well feel that they haven't had good jobs or the best education, or they may be bewildered or wounded by a history of relationships that didn't work out, or they may have a load of complaints. And those are deeply personal. And some of them also obviously can be caused by any number of social and economic forces, including the restriction, the the loss of jobs in recent years and or the changes in the job market, which have left a lot of people in quite precarious positions, including white people who feel quite put upon, if not oppressed. And yet for them to understand that they're also living out privilege, that they don't walk the street with the same fear of violence, they don't enter a store or a workplace with fear of discrimination, they don't find that their health claim is refused or not processed, they don't have to handle a whole set of presuppositions that come toward them in a number of social situations. Because their whiteness is part of, it's part of the background of the world. It's the air they breathe. It's the operative presumption of life. It, it, It needs actually to be brought out as a system of privileges that works in exclusionary and violent ways. And that takes a certain kind of self-consciousness, maybe to some degree, unearthing the denial that is lodged at an unconscious level, and at another level, actually learning about things like population racism, or what is the history of slavery, and how does it reverberate in present day racist practices, and 
what is the doctrine of white supremacy and why is it that there are more people who are adherents to this this noxious view than we ever imagined could have been the case. I mean, learning about that social world and not letting its taken for granted structures remain unquestioned is is part of the job. How one is implicated in that field, how one reproduces it unknowingly in an everyday way, that's a moment of self-consciousness that you know, is not so easy for some people to do. Sometimes it's immediate guilt. I didn't do it, right? This is what Romy says, like, I didn't do it. I wasn't here. I, I wasn't a slave owner. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've seen Germans do that, by the way. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't part of the Nazi thing. You know, I came later. It's like, yeah, do you bear any responsibility as a German for the history of your country? How, how do you think about that? How do you understand yourself as part of this white world, this German world, you know, that needs to continue to take into account a deeply embedded racism or anti-Semitism, whatever it may be, because it's getting passed around and passed generation to generation in some unmarked ways. And yet we can, we can track that. We can still track mm-hmm. it, you know, um, yes. the unmarked leaves its marks. We know where it's going. This is so important for what for thinking about how we will train psychoanalysts. Both Judith and I have written about this distinction among disciplines of sociology and psychoanalysis and may the never two meet, and how we will bring some of these subjects into the training program. One of the things that occurs to me when I think about how to shift from populations to individual psychoanalysis or to change analyst frameworks about racism is that it's also shifting from a kind of triumphal mode to a mode of loss and mourning, right? Of acknowledging what's missing, acknowledging what we don't understand, acknowledging who we haven't valued, brings about a kind of awareness of what Judith, you call grievability, Right? What is it that allows us to value some people's lives and not others? And how can we change that? Mm-hmm. Do you want to say a little bit more about grievability? It's an odd story, but you know, there was a, a kid in my neighborhood, not, not far from here, who would always run in the streets and, and people would yell at him, like, why are you running the streets? It's dangerous. The cars, you know, pass very quickly here. And it took me a while to understand that this kid didn't have a sense that he had a life that was worth preserving, you know, um, in philosophy and in psychoanalysis, we're taught, you know, that self-preservation is a basic drive or a basic disposition that, that, that the organism, the human organism seeks to preserve itself and to further its own life. And, and he, he wasn't exactly, I, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say he was seeking death, but I, but there was a sense that, yeah, if he were hit or not hit, to whom would it matter? And, and I had a brief conversation in which that seemed to, he, he seemed to say some things, in, including, you know, you know, why do you care? <laughs> well, and, mm-hmm. and is there anyone who does care? And so to have, a, to be living in a world, and even as a young person, with a sense that one's life is not potentially grievable, like if this life were snatched away or extinguished by a natural force or police brutality? Would anybody care? Would it be marked? Would it be a loss that people would mourn? 
or is this life in its living form bearing a sense of its ungrievability? Like no one would care if I leave. No one would care if I'm gone. No one would notice if I disappeared. That is a, a sense of being devalued that of course has enormous psychic resonance, but also is a way of experiencing a world that does not countenance, does not acknowledge or recognize the value of not just this person, but the community to which he belongs. And I guess I wanted to say population is is an important word for many of the reasons that Patricia has outlined. Population is is kind of what groups are called from a managerial policy perspective. It's like, how do we manage populations? How do we regulate them? How do we predict what will happen with them? What do we do with them? The we who's thinking about populations is not part of a population, right? They are the thinkers who are a part above trying to make decisions with respect to population. Population is not a self-description so much, you know, that people don't say belong to this population unless they've internalized that managerial regulatory perspective. So Patricia's absolutely right that psychoanalysis has focused almost exclusively on in the individual psyche, understanding the social world as something external and, and external to the clinical setting, which is, of course, itself a social relation. Uh, but also, you know, psychoanalysis has always thought about groups, group psychology. You know, that's always been, as well as Patricia can tell us, the, the, the nexus between the sociological, the social, and the individual. And also, you know, Mr. Freud, he had a lot to say about war, right? Like, what was he thinking about war for? <laughs> and other, like, large social phenomena, like religion. And those were not always individual-based case studies. Those were also cultural and social reflections, if not political reflections on our time or his time that I think were part of a tradition of psychoanalysis that gets separated off from the clinical setting. Those are his mm -hmm. speculative works. Those are his imaginative yes. cultural reflections. But in fact, they, they do have bearing on the clinical setting in ways that I think have been underestimated. And of course, there were people like Joel Covell, I mean, who wrote really early on, right, on white racism, for instance, 1970, who used psychoanalysis to think about racism. If I'm correct, he had to fight the psychoanalysts who were saying that he was beyond, he was going beyond the proper, you know, reach of psychoanalytic theory in doing so. But he did open up an, an enormous set of problematics uh, for us to consider. It would be well worth considering now, nearly 50 years later, what that book looks like now, you know. I should mention that in uh, Judith's newest book. It's your newest book, Judith, right? The Force of Nonviolence. There's great uh, material there on Freud and war. I really enjoyed reading it. And and you're right that we could draw on other aspects of psychoanalysis to help us. So along the lines of Freud and war, you know, he talked a lot about guilt, right, as as sort of the basis for ethical behavior and controlling our destructiveness. Judith, you made the point in your book that, you know, Klein took a slightly different tack and emphasized reparations and that neither really is enough, that somehow we have to be able to tolerate the ambivalence of both loving and being destructive. 
as a way forward. Just like checking our guilt is not enough. But I guess I'm, I'm raising this because I wanted. I, I want to say that I have great trouble with the fact that so many people have died that are unrecognized and ungrieved publicly. But how in the world can we make the importance of each of these lives matter to us as a culture? Because I fear what happens to us if we don't. What happens to the guilt? What happens to our implication in that suffering? I don't know if either one of you have thoughts about that. I have a couple of thoughts. One is, you know, Claudia Rankin, I think in 2015, wrote a piece for the New York Times that was recently republished. The condition of Black life is one of mourning. It was quite quite an important description. It's not the only one of its kind, but it, it does speak to our moment. And there she talks about a conversation with a friend in which this friend, who's a mother, lives every day worrying about her son, when and where she will lose him, and what it means to live every day wondering how he will be shot or how he will die or how he will disappear and and what that anticipation is of mourning like always mourning getting ready to mourn assuming one will have to mourn and just to go back to grievability i mean sometimes mm-hmm. as you say we do have the problem of how to grieve those who have died the countless numbers who have died or the ones we can count but whose names we do not know or whose histories we don't know or or who are acknowledged only by those numbers right numbers which are supposed to be acknowledgement, but they're actually effacement. Like, what was this life? Not just the name, but like, where did they live and who did they love and who is crying? And yeah, they're just a population. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's very hard. It's a it's a place where I I think narrative comes in, imagery comes in, where artists are so important mm-hmm. in trying to reconstruct a world that makes it possible for us to have a greater picture of the the lives people were living. At the same time, you know, I think it's very hard to to give full acknowledgement to the value of a life. I mean, what we can do is insist upon a social and economic organization of life that treats every life equally and accepts the the radical grievability of every life, right? If this life were to be lost, it would be grief. That is why we safeguard that life, or we have we live in a world that gives health care to everyone. That, that it's a public good and one to which everyone should be able to lay claim. It's about building a world that has that kind of acknowledgement of value and and commitment to radical social equality built into its social institutions. Right. That's what allows people to live with a sense that their lives are valuable, that they would be more, that the loss of their lives would be a real loss and not just the loss of a loss, but, you know, something that would never make a mark. I'm thinking about how the current Black Lives Matter movement and all the protests going on currently are very much an effort to bring about some radical grievability. And I love, I was telling both Billy and Romy, that I love the chants on the street uh, because tell his name, say his name, say her name, because I hear there not just a, a, a call for recognition and of subjectivity and of personhood, but also um, a listing of all those names to indicate that they are targets of murderous 
policing mm-hmm. day in and day out. So that there's practices every day that keep some people feeling that they are not valued in their actual living and have to really struggle to value themselves. It's interesting. We have a police force, but we don't have a protective force. Why don't we have a force of protectors? We don't. If this were science fiction, we could imagine a force of protectors. I think the wall of the wall of moms was an attempt at creating that. Right. And then only to be, you know, encountered with such great violence, which this might be a nice pivot towards some of the thinking that you laid out in your book, Judith, around violence and nonviolence. I guess I was, I I wanted to go back just for a moment, and then I'm really glad to to talk about nonviolence, to the defense of guilt that that white uh, Mm -hmm. people very often have. It's not me. I didn't do it. What does it have to do with me? You, You may remember... Audrey Lord's famous way of distinguishing guilt and responsibility. I remember being there when she gave this talk. I, mean, she, I think she gave a few times. I saw it in New York City. But she said, and I'll just, I'll just uh, cite this if you don't mind, guilt is not a response to anger. It is a response to one's own actions or lack of action. If it leads to change, then it can be useful since it's then no longer guilt but the beginning of knowledge, right? So guilt has this chance to transform itself into the beginning of knowledge. It, it dissolves, we might say, as it becomes the beginning of knowledge. Yet, all too often, she writes, guilt is just another name for impotence. Oh, I'm so guilty. Mm. I'm so, I feel so guilty. End of story. That's not the end of the story. <laughs> uh, um, for defensiveness, destructive of communication. It becomes a device to protect ignorance and the continuation of things the way they are, the ultimate protection for changelessness, protection for changelessness, right? My world Mm. protects the status quo. And I think she, you know, she shifted to a notion of responsibility, which was actually taking an active part in remaking the world, affirmative, more knowledgeable, agentic, Right. And that's where guilt actually transforms into, you know, world making sociability, which I think is, is very, very different. Guilt, she was, she was never interested in white people being guilty about their own privilege unless the guilt is a point of departure for this other kind of world making activity and, you know, to really change the world and to accept one's power to change it. I want to say that it doesn't work just to vilify ourselves for white privilege and stop there. It's like, yeah, white privilege, and now what? And Mm -hmm. what do I do with it? And if I do have power and responsibility, how shall I act on it and with it and with others? You know, what what are my alliances? What are our aims? And it's that's that's the affirmative transformation. And I think it's I think it's very often lost. You know. My view is that people, and I don't have to tell this to a bunch of analysts, I mean, people do, do carry with them murderous ideation and murderous wish, right? I mean, everybody has to come to grips with that. My, my worry has been that people who uh, advocate for nonviolence do so on the basis of love, understood as the absolute opposite of murderous wish, or, or, or passivity, or peacefulness of soul. And I actually think nonviolence is a struggle. It's part of a struggle. It, yeah. it can be very aggressive without being violent. 
I think Black Lives Matter is, for the most part, what I've seen. It's just an enormously, uh, yes, in your face, strong, angry, raging. But a lot of people, most people, 97% of the movement, not going over into violence, uh, but staying with the rage in public, right? Very powerful, staying mm-hmm. with the rage in public. And and making people right. hear those Turning names them into and words. making people listening them into words and shows and spectacle and demonstrations and marches that do not end. Mm-hmm. And, and and there is a sense like, oh, this is an endless demonstration. This is not like perfunctory. This one is this demonstration is going to be the part of our new way of life. It's you know, nonviolence is not just refraining, stopping myself from it. it it's also taking apart uh, the systemic violence with which we live, right? Thinking about prisons. It's, it, you know, thinking about, do we need prisons? What are their structures? These are violent institutions. Do we need police? What are, what are their tasks? Are they the violent arm of the state? Are they more concerned with the exercise of their so-called legitimate coercive force than they are in actually helping to build communities and and infrastructures and and true true safety all all of these questions are they're not just opposing this violent act with nonviolence they are opposing this violent world including the violence of systemic racism with another vision and another way of see, of of creating the world and recreating its fundamental yeah i think w- one of the things that i was so struck by in your book, and I think in your work, Patricia, is the way that, you know, we hear over and over on the media about these violent protesters. And yes, it's only a small group, but they're violent. And therefore, it justifies the police from having a violent response, or now, you know, this paramilitary force that Trump has organized. So it's like, who gets labeled violent and why? seems to be very important. Because from our point of view, it seems as though the state is the one that's violent. And from their point of view, they think that just because people are of color, they're they're by definition violent. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about how that happens, or whether I'm whether I'm even stating it correctly. Mm-hmm. Well, Judith has a great argument about it in her book. Yeah, so I want to hear um, yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I'm thinking about, yes, of course, uh, that's what I mean by population racism. That there's the uh, ongoing construction of some people, uh, some groups, using all kinds of data to define them as violent, especially when they have the potential to oppose the violence of the state. And so when they do oppose the violence of the state, which in many ways is justified, they get defined as violent. Judith. The taking of Black lives as if they do not matter and the letting black brown lives die right the bi- biopolitical necropolitical letting die uh, which is being conducted by government and health facilities and he- the health system and big pharma and a, a number of of coordinated powers they're like two different ways of of not mattering of seeing lives go so out there Black Lives Matter, you know, people say, well, why Black Lives Matter in the middle of COVID? Isn't that a problem? It's like, no, no, Black Lives Matter in the middle of COVID has to be 
Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> this is like the difference between like fast, brutal killing by police and slow, clear dying by by the by a, by the systemic structure of that form of biopolitical management that is geared to let black life die. And I, I want to say black and brown, because at least in the United States, it is those communities. And let's not you know, forget the, the indigenous whose sheltering arrangements are not always conducive to the government regulations and whose ex- access to health care is notoriously bad for, for reasons that have everything to do with the longest lasting discrimination in this country. And I would want to add individuals who are incarcerated, whether in prisons or in ICE detention facilities. There's so much let let them die yes. biopolitical force going on. I think so. I think it's really uh, great that we end, <laughs> we're ending, I think, on biopolitics because the recent events, as Judith was just saying, as we all have been, this connection between COVID and policing really shows the centrality of governance and the focus of the power of governments on life itself. And, you know, we won't be surprised. It's part of systemic racism, part of biopolitics, necropolitics, that some people, people of color, indigenous, are suffering more from degradation of the planet as well. So it is intensely systemic, isn't it, racism? And, and our response has to be too. I was thinking um, you might have given us a way in before we end, because I don't want to miss at least naming and explaining for our listeners the idea of interdependency. If either of you could add to that or expand on it, it would be great. Well, I I think one of the interesting dimensions of, of the COVID pandemic is that we realized, I think, pretty quickly in March and early April that everybody in the world was actually or potentially affected and that we were oddly interconnected. We, we, we infect each other. We travel, we infect each other. We're infected by others. Our bodies are, are dependent on what other people are doing to be well. They are dependent on what we are doing to be well. We can act like we are these solitary units just concerned with self-care, but there is no self-care which is not at once the care of the other, and there's no way of caring for the other without engaging in self-care. So this is a, a connectedness, a, a bonding, a social bonding of care that is there, which is, is not just mm, local, right? We, we live in parts of the world that get visited by people or businesses come in through, you know, to this part of the world or another part of the world and that travel in, interpenetrates our lives. I, I think that, um, uh, some of the more utopian uh, visions that came out in the early part of the um, pandemic uh, were based on this idea that we could recognize our interdependency. We could recognize uh, also the importance of preserving the earth, the, the, our ability to breathe the air, to eat the food. We recognize the complexity of the food chain, especially as it was disrupted. And, you know, one was standing in line and not sure what one would get, you know, by way of food or if one would come out having contracted the virus. I mean, I think that interdependency is there without the virus, but the virus illuminates it in a particular way, in a frightening way, Mm -hmm. but also in an oddly hopeful way. 
And mm-hmm. if we if we did understand ourselves as more relationally connected, not just to our local communities or people or our families, but regionally and globally, that would produce a, a different mindset for thinking about environment and health and poverty and racism and and possibly open up a way of thinking global solutions. I I do see that forms of nationalism and certainly forms of masculinity within the US are based on a denial of dependency and absolute refusal. We will have we will have a vaccine for our people only. <laughs> or uh, we we are not going to be dependent on, you know, the vaccine the Chinese make or, you know, there the, but then there are other movements, incredible collaborations among scientists that show a very different way of setting national borders aside. So unfortunately, we're going to have to stop for today. But I just wanted to say one thing and to just note that James Baldwin said in 1962, we cannot be free until they are free, talking about blacks and whites. So this is not an entirely new idea, but we are getting a new and hopefully better iteration of it. Well, we want to thank you so much uh, for joining us for this fascinating conversation. Incredibly enriching. I, um, I'm optimistic our listeners will feel that same enlightening, enriching energy. So, and hopefully for those who do find themselves grappling with their own defensiveness in the various ways we talked about, this will help break it up a little bit. That would be wonderful. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. Couched is funded by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association and the Psychoanalytic Society of NYU. The advice and information presented on Couched is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your personal psychological, medical, financial, or legal advisor before taking any action.